You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Welcome to Talk of the Bay. We've just passed the demarcation line. We're going to hear from Jeff Charlotte, whose new book, The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, looks at an exclusive Christian group. Now we're going to be speaking with Jeff Charlotte. Jeff, can you hear me? Great. Jeff Charlotte is a contributing editor for Harper's and Rolling Stone and an associate research scholar at New York University's Center for Religion and Media, where he's taught journalism and religious studies and edits therevealer.org. He is co-author with Peter Mansow of Killing the Buddha. His new book is The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is a really fascinating book. You know, when I explained the premise to my wife the first time, she thought it sounded almost like a satire because it's so incredible. Tell us just who is the family. Well, the family is the oldest uh, and and most influential Christian right organization in the United States. It goes back 70 years. Um, and yet most people have never heard of them, and that's because the family prefers it that way. It, this is not some kind of conspiracy or anything like that, but they are secretive. Um, uh, the leader of the group uh, likes to say, the more you can make your organization invisible, the more influence it will have. And indeed, they do have influence because instead of rallying uh, you know, folks out in the heartland to vote for politicians, they go straight to the source of power. They minister only to politicians, and they draw in only elite, this, this very small membership uh, built around kind of a cult of personality of a leader, a man named Doug Coe, and a very unorthodox theology, so unusual, in fact, that there are even fundamentalist Christians uh, who find uh, the family disturbing and anti-democratic. Could, now, you found the family yourself, not through a professional contact, but just uh, through personal experience. Explain to me your first interaction with this unusual group. Sure. Well, I've been writing about religion as a journalist for many years, and um, uh, first ran into them back in 2001. I was working on uh, my first book, Killing the Buddha, which was sort of a travelogue of religious life around the country. And a friend of mine, knowing a religion journalist, said, hey, uh, my brother's going to be in New York. Can you meet with him? Uh, we're worried that he has joined a cult. And I sat down with this guy. Uh, there's only two names that I changed in the book, and he's one of them, um, because he's a, a slightly... Uh, he's a guy who's had a rough time of it, and uh, he's not a power player, so I want to protect him. So I call him Zeke in the book. I sat down with Zeke, uh, and Zeke seemed to transform first, and he seemed to really have gotten his act together. Um, uh, Zeke had always been an anti-Semite. I happened to be Jewish. He apologized for his anti-Semitism over the years. Um, and he told me about this organization, and he invited me to join. Although he didn't call it an organization, he didn't describe the politics of it, he described it as it was a group of guys gathered together. And uh, he said, it's really unusual. that you don't even have to believe in Jesus. Just come and learn. It'll be interesting. And I went and uh, joined this group house they have in Arlington, Virginia. 
And uh, and I realized within a couple of days that this was not just a group of guys hanging out together. My first clue was Senator Jesse Helms came by for a visit. Um, and I thought, all right, well, I understand that. That's that's the Christian right. You know, they, they work with guys like Helms. But what was really unusual uh, was a visit uh, by a guy named uh, Bondovic, who at the time was the newly elected conservative prime minister of Norway. Norway had just elected its first real conservative in a in, in long, long time. And I realized that this was not the Christian right as we normally think of it, as it's sort of like uh, Bible thumpers on TV and so on. And so I stuck around, uh, lived with them for about a month, and uh, then spent several years interviewing hundreds of people and digging through archives to tell the story. One of the things that I think that's that's most fascinating uh, uh, about the family is just their their um, origin, because this isn't a group that's appeared in the last few years. They've been around for 70 years, as you mentioned, and they started out as helping to take apart the New Deal before it was almost even finished. Exactly. And I think this is so important, especially for progressives and lefties and liberals, to understand um, right now we live in a moment when a lot of people think the Christian right is down and out. It's important to remember that in 1925, 1925, every newspaper in the country declared fundamentalism done, a spent force in America. And that declaration has been made by the press routinely uh, the decades ever since. The family goes back to 1935. They've been in Washington uh, uh, wielding influence since 1942. They began out in Seattle, Washington, with a Norwegian immigrant, uh, appropriately enough, Norway, uh, a guy named Abraham Verady, who had risen to some prominence as, as a minister. In fact, in 1932, he even had an audience uh, with uh, then-Governor uh, Franklin Roosevelt, in which uh, also in the room was a guy named James Farrell, the head of U.S. Steel. And this steel titan says, every depression in American history has been the result of disobeying God's law. And this just, this was, was, just was a light bulb over Verady's head. He believed it was true. In 1935, he believed God came to him and gave him a vision and said that for 2,000 years, Christianity had been getting it all wrong. Christianity had been about helping the weak, the suffering, the poor, the down and out. And God said to Verady, uh, he says, no, what I want you to do is I want you to minister to the up and out, to the powerful, to the elite. And, you know, the, the idea was essentially that instead of having a democratizing force like the New Deal, if you could give these guys power, then they'll do good things for the rest of us. So it's a sort of trickle-down fundamentalism. But it was specifically activated by this idea that the New Deal was a communist plot to take over America. And uh, uh, Verity was able to organize some of America's most elite businessmen who really hated Roosevelt. They hated the New Deal. And the group really gets its legs as a union-busting organization. Um, I think that, to me, is something really fascinating, is that fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, in American history has has a whole economic history that we tend to ignore because we're looking at hot-button issues like abortion um, or or same-sex marriage. We need to understand that these guys have been intimately linked with the very kind of free market fundamentalist economics that has driven us to the brink, the current economic disaster that we're in right now. It's, as you explain it, uh, almost... uh an inverted theology, and this comes from your uh, conversations with a gentleman named Bent, I'm going to pronounce it, Uh, which is uh, fascinating because what what they want is what God wants, isn't it? It's 
uh, you know, uh, 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 from uh, the Cato Institute, which is a very conservative uh, think tank in Washington, uh, but he read the book and um, uh, he thought he was going to load it because he's conservative and so on. But he read it and he said, these guys are horrifying. He said that they've really bastardized religion, they've bastardized uh, free market economics. And what they're doing is, yeah, they say they're doing what they're going to do what God wants, but what it really is is self-interest by proxy. Verity's idea of how are you going to organize these elite businessmen, these politicians, these generals, how are you going to organize them? Well, he didn't want them going to church. Church, to his mind, was too democratic. It was what he called the din of the box populi, the racket of the voice of the people. He wanted to get away from all that, where elites could speak directly to God, and they would get together in what he called prayer cells. That would be a group of maybe five or six men of your status, because you shouldn't be expected to mix, uh, you know, mix with the, the rabble. So you'd be only uh, together with a group of elites. And, uh, um, well, I can give you an example of the way it works today that was uh, explained to me by uh, Senator Sam Brownback in Kansas, who's uh, uh, been involved with the family throughout his whole career. Um, what would happen, for instance, is that Sam Brownback would go to the cell and he says, guys, I have a heart for Central Asia have a heart for something means to feel that God has put a burden on him. How should I pursue it? I'll say, mm, I don't know, I don't know. Someone might come up and say, well, maybe some legislation you could do. And Sam Brownback nods. And he ends up uh, sponsoring something called the Silk Road Act, teams up with a couple of his brother brothers in the family, in the House, and the Senate, and so on, to pass this piece of legislation. It's kind of like a NAFTA with the Central Asian Republics. Um, it's a terrible piece of legislation. Uh, any way you cut it for uh, national security, for economics, for helping the Central Asian republics. It's good, however, um, for natural gas interests, who happen to be some of Brownback's biggest financial backers. At which point you sort of want to say, well, obviously this is all a cynical ruse, but that's not how they see it. If you get wealthy because you're doing God's work, well, that's a sign that God approves of what you're doing. It's a sort of tautological reasoning, you know that um, you benefit, and therefore you're doing what God wants. Uh, and that's why uh, this, this phrase that I think is so apt came up, the self-interest by proxy. One of the things I thought was really fascinating and also extremely scary are the role models for this group. You would think that a Christian group would have uh, mainly Christian role models, not Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler, Mao, <laughs> and some of the other people they talk about. Could you ta- explain how they see these um, you know, fascist uh, killers as uh, positive role models? Yeah, that's... Um, that's- I think one of the most startling things when I was living with these guys for about a month, Doug Coe, the longtime leader of the group, he would make reference to this. Other people, would, it became a very routine thing to look at the leadership lessons of Hitler. Now, I have to really clarify, as, as emphatically as I can, these are not neo-Nazis. At the same time, I want to say that after World War II, they actually welcomed a lot of former Nazis into the group. But they're not neo-Nazis. That's not what they like about Hitler. What they like is strength. They like the same thing they like about Hitler, they like about Mao, they like about Lenin, they like about Stalin, they like about Pol Pot, Osama bin Laden. These are all examples that are cited. Doug Coe, the leader of the group, uh, speaking to a group of fundamentalist leaders uh, at one point says, um, uh, uh, and you can, by the way, you can hear, uh, this, this is an audio sermon, this is online on the website of a Christian right group called The Navigators. He says, uh, who are the three leaders of the 20th century who best understand the New Testament? You know, people are maybe thinking Martin Luther King or something like that. No, no, no. It's Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. Because what do Hitler, Stalin, and Mao understand? The New Testament is about 
mercy, is about justice, is about love, forgiveness. No, it's not about any of those things. It's about power. They read the New Testament, and that's the message they take away from it. Power. And Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, whatever else you say about them, are the three guys who understood power. So he'll say they're evil men. We don't want to be like them uh, in that sense, but we do want to emulate their model of power. If I can give you another example, one of their favorite verses is uh, uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, uh, uh, verse 20. It goes, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Sounds kind of a harmless enough verse about solidarity. This is how Coe illustrates it. I'm quoting, Hitler, Goebbels, and Himmler were three men. Think of the immense power these three men had, these nobodies from nowhere. Uh, but they bound themselves together in agreement, and they died together. Two years before they moved into Poland, these three men had a study done, systematically a plan drawn out and put on paper to annihilate the entire Polish population and destroy by numbers every single house and every single building in Warsaw and then to start on the rest of Poland. And they did it. This is an example of teamwork, what teamwork can accomplish. It's really frightening, and I think that's, you know, there's a, a saying out there that, the, you know, the first person to invoke Hitler in an argument loses the argument because, you know, to compare someone to Hitler is, is uh, extreme. I'm not comparing them to Hitler. This is their language. This is the family's language. This is uh, their theology, and this is what they're talking about with uh, congressman. I sat in on a session where Doug Coe was counseling uh, Congressman Todd Teahart, a Republican from Kansas, who looks like he's in line to become the next senator from Kansas uh, when uh, Senator Brownback moves to the governor's office, um, and uh, gave him this exact same rhetoric. It's his boilerplate. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it's as offensive to honest Christian fundamentalists as it is to anybody else. One of the things I think that's really interesting, too, you describe the, this group as having an, a, an ambition that's a, a goal that's more ambitious than al-Qaeda. They want a worldwide government under God, and it's there. They're running it, eh? Yeah, al-Qaeda are pikers. I mean, come on. Al-Qaeda, they, they want Mecca, you know? Um, uh, I mean, it's important to remember that about al-Qaeda. Um, they're violent um, uh, and terrorists. Um, because they lack the means to pursue their ends in other ways. You know, I was writing about this book, and because the group is somewhat secretive and so on, people would ask me, do you feel your life is at danger and anything else? And I said, absolutely not, absolutely not. Um, the family doesn't need to do that kind of stuff. I mean, when you have influence in Washington, and this influence, by the way, has been, it's been uh, quantitatively uh, uh, measured by a conservative sociologist uh, named Michael Lindsay down at Rice University. Did a survey of 360 uh, uh, evangelical politicians in Washington, and more than any other group, uh, the family was mentioned as the most influential organization in Washington, which is pretty good work for a group that denies that it exists. Um, but that kind of power, that kind of influence, um, means that they're not going to resort to to often people in the shadows and any of that kind of conspiratorial junk. Um, this is a group that shapes foreign policy. Um, this is a group that can, uh, as I tell the story in the book, uh, a couple of really well-documented examples of um, arranging really massive arms deals for foreign dictators. Um, uh, the death squads in Central America in the 1980s, they thought were great champions of God. Um, the generals who took over Brazil in the 60s, Sahardo, the uh, recently deceased dictator of Indonesia, killed more than 
million of his own people. These were all men whom they thought were chosen by God for leadership. Um, and because their membership consists of senators and so on, these guys can make massive shipments of uh, American foreign aid to these countries. Um, that's on a bigger scale than al-Qaeda. Now, I want to be careful. I mean, I don't want to say someone like Sam Brownback or Senator John Ensign and Governor Mark Sanford, both in the news lately and also both connected. Obviously, these guys are not like Osama bin Laden. They're not killers or anything else. Um, but we want to look at the effects of their actions around the world, which really are devastating. Um, and we want to think about um, this word that Christian conservatives like to use. We want to think about the word accountability um, and how it applies to more than the, uh, you know, the, the sex life of Governor Sanford or Senator John Ensign or Senator Brownback. Let's talk about how accountability applies to the policies they support and, frankly, the blood that uh, is spilled because of those policies. Let's kind of ratchet back in history a little bit to their first entree into uh, the the highest levels of American government, and this is it's something that we see every year, and I remember seeing this covered this year and not thinking too much about it, which is the the president's prayer breakfast, and and they they've been running that since 1953. Yeah, 1953. Well, the first entree since it was 1942, and they moved to Washington. Uh, Senator Ralph Brewster, um, who, if you uh, if anyone saw that that silly movie with Leonardo DiCaprio as as uh, Howard Hughes, Alan Alda played Ralph Brewster. Ralph Brewster was a real dealmaker back then, and he saw this group as very effective. He was a right-winger, too. He was a Republican from Maine, but he was a Klansman, a Klansman from Maine. Um, and he really brought uh, Verady and the family into the Capitol. Um, uh, by the late 40s, they had uh, a lot of the very senior politicians um, were regular members of the group, uh, a guy named Absalom Willis Robertson, his son, if you, some people may have heard of, is Pat Robertson, all these guys. But what they really wanted to do was have an official event that would consecrate America to their version of Christianity. And they came up with this idea of a national prayer breakfast um, that would sort of devote America to God. And they tried it out on FDR, who refused to even meet with them. Um, they tried it out on Truman, uh, who had some pretty conservative religious ideas, but Truman understood we can't do this. This is this is beyond the pale of church and state. And then came Eisenhower. And Eisenhower didn't want to do it either. Eisenhower also knew it was a violation of church and state, and he also thought it was a lot of hooey. Uh, but his right-hand man was a guy named Senator Frank Carlson, Republican from Kansas, uh, kind of a crook, uh, but also really good, um, sort of a good lieutenant to have in the Senate. He was really Ike's right-hand man. And he was also, at the time, uh, the, the official president of the organization, and he called in favors. So they organized a national prayer breakfast, um, and they've run it ever since, um, which is interesting because I've interviewed congressmen who uh, think that it goes back to the beginning of the republic, James Madison with rolls on his grave. Um, and when you, get, when you get invited to the national prayer breakfast, which, you know, the president of the United States always speaks, it uh, doesn't matter which party, most of Congress goes, born heads of state go, um, uh, um, your invitation comes on congressional letterhead. You don't know it has anything to do with the family. Um, but you look, and it's ostensibly ecumenical, but you look at the internal planning documents, one document I was able to find, um, so that anything can happen, even the Koran can be read, but Jesus is there, he is infiltrating the world. And the real work of infiltrating the world takes place in the week-long lobbying fest 
that occurs before and after the national prayer breakfast. So there's two hours in the public eye, and then there's session for the de- sessions for the defense industry, for the oil industry, for the banking industry, for prison industry, and they're all about how do you do business and please God and make money and do good at the same time. As far as well, getting one of the things you can do to apparently please God and make money is to make a monster movie starring Steve McQueen. <laughs> Tell us about the origin of the blob. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which sadly did not make much money for its, its genius creators. Um, this goes back, uh, um, I believe, uh, uh, 1957 prayer breakfast. Um, uh, when... Uh, a, and, you know, I, I, this was a real sort of a stumble-upon thing. I didn't even find this in the archives. The family had 600 boxes of documents at the Billy Graham Center archives. Because that was a little piece together the story. But I was reading something else, and I come upon uh, an interview with uh, the woman, Kate Phillips, who, who wrote the blog. And uh, um, she talks about how she had been introduced to this sort of evangelical filmmaker named Shorty Ye- Yeworth um, uh, at the prayer breakfast. Um, which is one of the ways, by the way, in which the prayer breakfast is supposed to function. It's supposed to bring like-minded people together, you know? Um, Kate Phillips actually was not a fundamentalist, but she was down on it and it seemed like a good idea. And um, Shorty Yeworth had this great idea for this film in which the blob would be this sort of shivering goop. It was pretty transparently a metaphor for creeping communism, you know? Um, and they made this movie. And uh, um, it's sort of one of the... Uh, the strangest fruits, you might say, of, uh, of, of the family. Um, but Yeworth was more than a kook who showed up at the prayer breakfast. He was also involved in um, uh, the making of a series of films um, that were made by the Pentagon. And these would be propaganda films for the troops, and they would be shown around the world, um, uh, militant liberty and operation abolition and things like this. And these were films that were made in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, by the Pentagon, by the head of the official Pentagon Office of Propaganda, U.S. Office of Information, who was also on the family's payroll at the time. Um, and they would say, look, uh, the difference between communism and us is God. And you're fighting for God. You're fighting for Christ. Um, uh, which, of course, is not the idea of the American ideal at all. Um, but uh, no one was challenging them. So the blob, you know, the blob's pretty harmless. Um, but some of these propaganda films that they were also involved with, I think... Uh, were quite a bit more uh, harmful in terms of stoking, stoking the Cold War. We'll get back to my conversation with Jeff Charlotte in just a moment. Now we'll get back to my conversation with Jeff Charlotte. Jeff, uh, beyond uh, the the blob, they also um, are at the heart of a, a lot of things. And I, I'd like you to talk about your visit to the city of Jerusalem, um, Colorado. Oh, oh, Colorado Springs, uh, the, 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 the New Jerusalem, so called. Uh, yeah, uh, um, uh, this is Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, referred to sometimes within evangelical circles as. as the, the New Jerusalem, and it's really also sometimes called the Vatican of Evangelicalism. Ground zero for um, the populist Christian right, 
And in the book, one of the arguments I really make is that we need to understand fundamentalism not as a monolithic movement, but as a movement like any social movement with many streams. And so you have the populist guys, the James Dobson and, and, and so forth, and then you have the sort of the elite branch. The family represents the elite branch. But I wanted to see how their ideas had uh, affected the populist movement. So I went to Colorado Springs, the New Life Church, uh, which was a very large megachurch pastored uh, at the time by a man named Ted Haggard, who I think most people have heard of now. Ted Haggard was a was really one of the, the the top power brokers of the Christian right until um, it was revealed that he had uh, for two years been having a relationship with a male prostitute um, and had also been using uh, math and uh, so he was disgraced and pushed out of power. Um, but what was interesting to me was that so many of the ideas of the family that the family had come up with in the 1930s had moved into the mainstream of American Christianity. So when I spend time with Ted Haggard, and then I've been back to, I was back in the church just last uh, last summer, and it's, it's still like this, although he's gone. You know, again, we have this idea that the Christian right cares only about abortion and, and, and homosexuality, and they do care about those things. But Ted thought those issues were absolutely secondary. The primary issue, he said, was free market, was, was free market fundamentalism, was laissez-faire economics. And he saw this as a Christian issue, he said. He saw it as an issue of biblical capitalism. And that's an idea that really originates uh, in, in American Christianity in the 1930s with the family. The other thing that was really startling was he organized his church into small cell groups. Um, and that's an idea that also comes from the family, as well as other sources. But the idea that you can, and you know, many of these books are, are, are terrific. You know, you get a small group together, and y'all like mountain biking. And you want to go mountain biking and then talk about the Bible? More power to you. That's that's your business. Um, uh, but in churches like New Life, the small the cell group structure ends up as a form of hierarchy and authority, and it ends up as a way of getting people to talk about issues that they don't really care about. Because the average person, um, uh, you know, for Ted Haggard, uh, steel tariffs were a big issue. Well, the average Christian at New Life Church in Colorado Springs doesn't care about. It. Uh, but through this, this hierarchy of cell groups, he's able to really almost sort of alter the doctrine of Christianity. So suddenly people find themselves talking about economics. Um, today they find themselves uh, rebe- you know, saying, look, this stimulus plan is terrible. It's interfering with God's invisible free hand and so on. And these are all the ways in which the ideas of the family, of this elite sort of avant-garde of fundamentalism, mainstream into the populist one of the things I thought was really interesting was that the way that the family has adopted the terminology and even the, the tactics of groups that you would think of be, you know, that are actually, in fact, diametrically opposed to them and the cell, uh, you know, this kind of uh, creation of cells. And you talk about how um, they appropriated, you know, the, the words of uh, the work of the feminists in, in creating safe spaces. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean... Uh, feminism, and that was Sam Brownback's thing. Sam Brownback is senator from Kansas, um, and and he ended up giving me terrific access for a variety of reasons. I think mainly because he thought he was going to run for president. So uh, at the time I was writing for Rolling Stone, he thought this was going to be terrific help to him. And he said, well, he's been involved in the family's entire career. And he said, you know, what it really does, it gives me a safe space to uh, talk about my uh, personal issues. And this is going to sound absurd and grotesque, and it is both. 
uh, one of those issues that he said he and the congressman he got together with and talked about. They're in Washington. They're lonely. They're away from their families. They're away from their wives. Uh, they struggle with the sin of owning. They struggle with masturbation. So, on the one hand, it's just so grotesque and absurd to think of these congressmen getting together and talking uh, about masturbation. On the other hand, um, I think with uh, Senator John Ensign and, 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 and Governor Sanford, we saw recently kind of the effects of that. That, um, And in fact, those guys uh, were turning to Senator Tom Coburn, also a member of the family, um, and who is also in brown bags, um, Paracel. Um, the idea is that these, the men in your Paracel are going to keep your secret, no matter what. Um, and they're also going to veto power over your lives. Um, and they call this accountability, but in fact, it's the exact opposite of accountability. If I have four or five guys, if I do something really awful, and I can tell my four or five buddies what I did, and then say, hey, man, I'm good. I'm good with God. Um, I don't actually have to go out there and take responsibility for what I did. Um, and, of course, neither Senator Ensign nor Governor Sanford willingly uh, took responsibility for what they did. They were both outed by uh, uh, some of the people who made harm. And, um, uh, you know, in this instance of, of, you know, marital infidelity and so on, it's not so important. But when we're talking about very powerful politicians, we're getting together and um, uh, pursuing policies that are potentially really dangerous to everybody. Um, and, and instead of going to the accountability of their voters, uh, going to the accountability of just four other guys, or ultimately, as, as several politicians said, the family will teach you uh, politicians that, you know, whoever voted for you, that doesn't matter. You don't have, you know, two million constituents. You don't have, you know, 20 million constituents if you're... Know, from someplace like New York, um, you have one constituent, and that one constituent is God. And what does God want? And how do you know what God wants? Well, you'll find out by talking to your four or five buddies and together you get to decide what God wants. That's very dangerous. Could you talk about the the place of of women in the family when you were at at Ivanwald? Um, there was a kind of a a, a you were with a group of men, but there was a, a counterbalancing uh, group of women. Could you tell me, describe uh, their part in, in the group? Yeah, well, my first introduction, as you say, was to this house called Ivanwald. This is the group home um, for young men who are sort of being groomed for leadership in the family. It's down in a cul-de-sac in Arlington. And at the end of the cul-de-sac is this great big, beautiful mansion overlooking the Potomac called the Cedars, uh, which they bought in 1978 with money uh, given to them uh, by the then CEO of Raytheon, the defense contractor, and a couple other corporate titans. Um, and they slowly built, uh, bought up the real estate around there. So there's this house called Ivanwall for young men, and then there's another house called Potomac Point for young women. And um, the family subscribes to uh, a, a fairly conservative idea of gender, uh, fairly conservative, putting it lightly. Um, they believe in um, uh, wifely submission. Um, they, they would say separate but equal. Of course, we know how well separate but equal has worked in American history, that, that uh, wife and husband are in separate and equal roles. Um, and while the young men were being groomed for leadership, the young women were being groomed uh, to serve coffee and tea. And these women were from some very elite families, very elite conservative families. Um, uh, but they were really kind of having their spirits broken. And I, that's their language, not mine. The family says, you come here, we're going to break you. That's what we do. We're going to break you until you are nothing. 
because you should be nothing before God. Um, you you are not important. I mean, this is very kind of uh, brutal language. Um, but the interesting thing is that when you encounter powerful women in politics, the family will make an exception. Uh, and they'll almost gender that woman male. They'll look at that woman as male. If you have power, you are male, and they can do business with you. And that's one of the ways in which they're different than the rest of the Christian right, and the why they've survived for 70 years when other Christian right movements kind of come and go. Um, as Doug Coe, the leader of the group, says, we work with power where we can. We build new power where we can't. Um, they're willing to work with whoever's in power, whether it's uh, a foreign dictator or maybe it's a communist. Uh, they'll work with a woman if she's in power. Power is the bottom line for them in all terms. But that said, within the family, it's extremely repressive. And, you know, one of the things I couldn't fit in the book, I spent a lot of time, I went back to the neighborhood, and there was this terrific group of women in the neighborhood who'd become very active um, uh, because the family are very bad neighbors. They own about 20 houses in this neighborhood. Um, and uh, they were terrible neighbors. They, you know, they have uh, 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 bodyguards for the various guests speeding down there, driving dangerously in the neighborhood. Um, and these women tried to meet with the men who were running the family, and uh, the men refused to meet with them unless the women brought their husbands. And their reasoning was that all women are lustful, and that if they get, were in alone in a room with these, these women, that these women would probably try to pounce on them and seduce them. And the guy who was saying this is a, um, um, he's not an attractive man, I'll put it that way. Uh, there was no danger of anyone ever wanting to seduce him. Uh, but he was, you know, from his sort of sense of biblical sense, that women are not to be trusted. Women are sexual predators. Um, so it's a very kind of um, classically conservative role, but then with this exception for powerful people. Now, one of the powerful women that they've dealt with is currently the Secretary of State. Yes, Hillary Clinton. Um, this is one of the really, I, I think Hillary Clinton is actually one of the perfect illustrations of how the family is different than the normal Christian right. The normal Christian right hates Hillary Clinton. Um, and the family, on the other hand, you're powerful, they're interested in you. And when I was living at Ivanwald, one of the leaders um, actually was talking to the, the guys who were sort of being groomed for leadership, and he sort of asked them what they thought about Hillary, and they all said, oh, they don't like Hillary, they don't like Hillary. And he says, well, what I want to explain to you is actually Hillary is a friend of ours. And this really puzzled these young guys. Um, but he wanted them to understand, again, this idea, we work with power where we can, build new power where we can they're more interested in having access to Hillary than they are in the sort of the purity of their ideology. Hillary's powerful, that's fine. Hillary, meanwhile, was interested in having access to their power. And you go back and you read Hillary's uh, autobiography, uh, Living History, and uh, she writes actually fairly openly about when she comes to Washington in 1993, uh, the family, she calls them the prayer breakfast folks, reached out to her. There's a photograph of her down at their headquarters in the theaters. They arranged uh, a sex-segregated prayer cell for her, because men and women can't pray, pray together really intimately. So she had a, a prayer cell uh, of conservative women, uh, Jack Kemp's wife, um, uh, uh, wife of a, a very prominent uh, energy executive who ended up giving a lot of money to the, the Clintons. Um, and she became close with Doug Coe, whom she recalls a genuinely uh, um, loving spiritual guide and mentor. 
this is the man, remember, uh, who said that Hitler, Stalin, and uh, Mao were the three men who best understood the New Testament. That's his idea of love. Um, now, I don't want to suggest that Hillary Clinton is some kind of secret fundamentalist. She's not. Um, but uh, I spent some time working with another journalist, Catherine Joyce. Uh, we originally did a feature for Mother Jones magazine about Hillary Clinton's connection, and we talked to a lot of the people around her and the people. Uh, she wouldn't talk to us, but many of her friends would. And um, you were able to see a real rightward shift. Um, and you were also able to see that Hillary's theology, that Hillary has a streak of conservatism in her, um, uh, or rather a streak of elitism. Um, that is very comfortable with the family. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was frankly just sort of very depressing to see that, uh, you know, Democrats, Republicans, um, uh, the family has survived by working with them both. And uh, they're not out of power when Republicans are. And it, it the most I think the most shocking thing to me in your book almost was uh, when uh, Senator James Inhofe uh, from uh, is it Alaska? Uh, uh, he's from Oklahoma. Oklahoma went after Gore, and Gore just said, "Well, you need to talk to Coe about this." That's very chilling. That's on you know this is one of the one of the, the really puzzling things about the story is why the media did such a bad job of covering. That was on TV when Gore went to testify uh, before before the Senate about uh, global warming. And uh, Senator Inhofe, who was the leading opponent of legislation global warming, was really writing into him. Uh, and Inhofe is a pretty pretty core member of the family, although his views on global warming are his own kind of crackpot stuff. I don't the family doesn't have <laughs> global warming is real. Um, uh, but Inhofe, you know, Inhofe has traveled throughout Africa representing the family. And, um, uh, and, and this sort of thing. And Gore, who also has a relationship with Doug Coe, says, as you say, says, you know, look, um, he's trying to defuse the situation. He says, why don't you and I get together with our mutual friend Doug Coe, and we'll hash this out. And that worked. Um, and Inhofe shut up. And, you know, you can sort of say, well, Jesus, that's so bad. That's not so bad. No, that's not so bad in that instance. But that kind of backroom dealing, that is the opposite of open democracy. And that was the kind of point where the press that was covering that, she said, well, who's this guy, Doug Coe? Um, you know, Doug Coe has done a little bit of coverage in the press. Uh, several years ago, Time Magazine did a, um, uh, a list of the 25 most powerful evangelicals. And uh, uh, reporter uh, David Van Bema calls me up and says, who do you suggest? Because I write a lot on these issues. And I said, Doug Coe. And he says, who? And Van Bema's a religion reporter and a good one. Um, and I said, look, just call around, call a dozen congressmen. If less than half of them, uh, if, they, if it, at least half of them will say Coe is, is one of the big power brokers. If they don't, don't include him. Well, sure enough, they include him. He was number four on their list. They called him the stealth persuader. At which point you would say, well, gosh, you know, our journalists out there, they're going to jump on top of this. They're going to go get all over this. They're going to, they're going to you know, uncover this. Do they? No, not at all. The L.A. Times did a terrific expose some years ago. Uh, Phil Surprise winner reporter Lisa Getters spent a year, dug in, uncovered the family's connections, the death squads, everything. Does the press fall up? Not a peak. NBC News tried last year with Hillary Clinton's connection, thinking that they had the big scoop of the electoral season. NBC News, hardly a leftist conspiracy theory kind of group, you know? Again, no follow-up. When we contrast this 
uh, with the rest of the world. And, and earlier on, I was talking about uh, Norway and this the strange conservative government that come to power in Norway. Well, uh, one of the biggest dailies in Norway noticed uh, that uh, their prime minister was jetting around the world using taxpayer dollars to go to spiritual enclaves. They decided to do the natural thing, what was going to do. They investigated. They put it on front-page news. It was Norwegian Watergate. It was front-page news for two weeks, and that government was voted out of power. That's how it's supposed to work. Unfortunately, we have a press here um, that uh, is really kind of illiterate when it comes to religion, and so they don't ask those tough questions because they don't even know those questions to ask. And um, uh, that's what allows the family. They're not trying too hard to be secretive. They don't have to. Uh, the press does their job for them. Well, could you talk uh, uh, about, do they have connections in the press? I mean, uh, uh, Not much. Um, a little bit. Uh, a little bit, I would say. Uh, you know, historically, uh, more so, uh, one of the, one of the, they have something called the core. The core is the group of guys who are really involved and who are considered to be closer to God than anybody else. And one of the core in the 50s was a man named David Lawrence, who was the publisher of U.S. News and World Report. Honor still is the fact that Lawrence was Jewish. Um, but Lawrence's real religion was anti-communism. That's what he cared about more than anything else, and that's what allowed the family to, to sort of bring him into their, uh, into their, their inner councils. Um, recently, no, no there's, no, there's no conspiracy of the press, you know, trying to, to cover this up. Um, uh, you know... There's always sort of a temptation, uh, unfortunately, especially in the left. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm a lefty. But there's a temptation in the left to see conspiracies. When, in fact, the most dangerous thing to democracy is not a conspiracy, it's conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is uh, what keeps the family uh, kind of hiding. And the conventional wisdom is um, that there couldn't be a group that's powerful. You can give the evidence, and uh, people will say, well, that just, that can't be. And this is something you talk about, that the family doesn't seek to overturn the establishment. The, the family is the establishment. Exactly. You know, I was really clued into that by a guy named Rob Shank, who is one of, um, uh, one of the Christian right leaders in Washington. He has a ministry called Faith in Action. Um, I, I actually like Rob a lot. Um, uh, he's, just, uh, he's a Jewish convert to fundamentalism. He speaks with sort of Yiddishism, and, and he's a very straight shooter, and he knows the family. He's kind of admired the family. He wishes he could be as organized as he could be as influential as them. But at the same time, as a sort of more traditional fundamentalist, he has some real issues that are important to him. Um, and he advocates for them in a democratic way. We may disagree with him, but he goes out in the public square and he says, this is what I think we should do. Because the family, the family, uh, you know, they don't really want to change anything. There's a religion of the status quo. He says, co is the kosher seal of doing religion and politics in Washington. They are the religion of things as they are. And I think a lot of lefties and progressives get caught up with this idea of theocracy, you know, scary term, or maybe, maybe they've seen Margaret Atwood's uh, read or seen the movie, Handmaid's Tale, and so on, and they say, what will the fundamentalists do if they take over? What do they want? I think the much more important question is to say, what have they already done? How is the world that we live in shaped by fundamentalists? How, in a sense, are we already living in the world that groups like the family dreamed of? Now, if you look around the world as is and say everything's hunky-dory, then you have no problem with the family. But if you look around and you say, hey, how come the United States alone, of developed nations, doesn't have a powerful labor movement that can advocate for uh, working people? 
Well, then you got to go back to the family, which began as a union-busting organization. And uh, one of their first big legislative uh, victories that they threw all their muscle into was a bill way back in the 1940s called the Taft-Hartley Act. Taft-Hartley, uh, right. The first big which, union buster. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, my grandfather was, uh, uh, was, uh, was a boilermaker and uh, was an organizer for the boilermakers. And he was not a liberal guy. He was kind of a conservative guy. But he he said, the only thing that matters for us, we will vote, give our money to, vote for anything, if we can undo Taft-Hartley. Taft Hartley just basically gutted a mass gutted, however you want to put it, um, the labor movement in America. And the labor movement in America has never been able to fully recover from that. And uh, I don't want to give sole credit to the family for that, but they were one of the uh, the big forces as as part of that uh, that anti labor movement that was very successful. Um, and that comes down to you know look around, look at your life, say. How come, uh, how come America, again, alone in the of developed nations, doesn't have universal health care? Can we explain that simply by saying, oh, there's a bunch of greed heads? Or is there an ideology, is there a worldview that allows people, allows conservative politicians to think that they're doing God's work when they oppose these things that seem so sensible, these things that seem like any Christian would support? And that's where you see the real influence, the, the ideological and the cultural influence. And it, lest we think that these prayer breakfasts only happen once a year, they happen on a weekly basis in the Senate, don't they? The Senate and the House uh, both have a, a, a weekly prayer breakfast. I, in, in the book, uh, uh, I talk about how these prayer breakfasts work. Um, uh, you know, sometimes they're not terribly political. I should say most politicians uh, with 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 bigger ambitions, I go through these prayer breakfasts at, at some point or the other. So going to a few of them, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that you're part of this. Um, but there is a core group um, that uh, is, is, is doing much more serious stuff. I mean, and you know, to give an example, I talked before about Sahardo, the uh, dictator of Indonesia. Uh, he's one of, the, one of the worst killers of the 20th century. He killed perhaps a million, 1.2 million of his own people uh, with weapons supplied, by the way, entirely by the United States. And this is all public record, by the way. I mean, this is not a controversial uh, assertion. You look at Sahardo and the family very early on, 1966, as soon as Sahardo came to power, said, this is a man of God. They began dispatching delegations of congressmen to meet with him. And then, although Sahardo was a Muslim, they invited him over to one of these weekly Senate prayer breakfasts and had a special closed session. Now, the family likes to say that the Senate weekly prayer breakfast is for senators, it's for their spiritual needs, nothing else. But they made an exception when Sahardo comes because they also invite uh, Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird, and they also invite the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And um, these are the guys who beefed up Sahardo's military to the point where, in 1975, he invaded East Timor in, in one of the genocides I think most people know about. Um, and the U.S. did not make a peep as he proceeded to absolutely slaughter that population. And I think that's a really important thing because sometimes I get uh, I get responses to the book from kind of a, a there's a certain kind of centrist liberal who really likes to think the establishment is basically good and it's on our side and so on. And they say, well, maybe what the family was trying to do is they were trying to prefend uh, Fajardo or Ferdinand Marcos or uh, Costi Silva or Siad Bar, any one of these killers, these dictators whom they considered uh, their clients. Um, maybe they were trying to prefend friend them to help them be better. And you sort of want to say, well, 
if you have a friend who is going off the rails, you help uh, him be better by giving him more guns? Because that was the formula. <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing I, I think that is a really fascinating uh, uh, about you know all of this is that you know what what can we do how how can you how can people who find this the idea of the family and what they're doing alarming what can what can we do about them well i mean i think we're doing it right now we're talking about it in public uh you know i gave that example before that norway uh norway managed to uh kick the family out of its government in very short order um uh, it took about two weeks of, of, of public press for people to say, hey, what's going on? This is not democracy. You know, we may maybe voted for this conservative government. And I think that's important to remember. This is ultimately not a conservative, this is not a left-right issue. This is a transparency issue. You can be a conservative uh, and be just as uh, upset about this as anything else. In fact, one of the things that's heartened me when I published the book is there's been a surprising amount of support from traditional fundamentals. These are fundamentalist Christians. They want America to be very different than maybe you and I do, Rick, but they do believe in democracy. They go out and they argue for their point of view, sometimes loudly, sometimes rudely, but they do argue for their public, the point of view in public, and that allows us to disagree. And They understand that's how it's supposed to work. That's what democracy is. So when we talk about this in public, we are doing the exact thing the family doesn't want to do. You know, they refer to themselves as a network of invisible believing groups. That's their language. They uh, they described, uh, they used to have somewhat of a public presence, but in 1966, Doug Coe sent a memo to everybody said, this time has come to submerge our public profile. Well, uh, the best way we fight back is um, saying, hey, we're going to talk about you. You know, you're free to do that if you want, but we're going to pay attention. And, you know, I, I mean, this is not a thing I... I so I say to people out there, you know, buy the book. And you know what? I'm not making any money if you buy the book because uh, uh, I've already been paid by my publisher. Or don't buy the book. You know, there's plenty of information online. Find this information. Uh, um, uh, weed through the information carefully because conspiracy theories have, theorists have latched onto it. And some of the stuff that's out there is pretty nutty and not true. But get the real stuff. Um, uh, forward it to your congressman. You know, I think one of the things that can happen and has happened in this sort of small scale, say a congressperson new to Washington gets an invitation to go to this prayer breakfast. Maybe the person is a Christian and they think this would be a kind of a good thing. Uh, they ask their, their chief of staff, hey, check this out. Is this something I want to be affiliated with? Well, if their constituents are saying, hey, congressman so-and-so, I don't care what church you go to, uh, but I think you should know that the folks who organize the National Prayer Breakfast think Hitler, Stalin, and Mao are just peachy examples of how to lead. Uh, I bet you that congressman's going to say, you know what, I think I will find someplace else to worship. And that's how we can weaken their power. So, you know, get yourself informed uh, and get your representatives informed. One of the things that, that you mentioned, I think that's that's pretty interesting, is the idea that there are kind of different strains w- within this group, so, so that there are some more moderate and, and liberal strains, yet no less... Uh, uh, dangerous as a result. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we mentioned Hillary Clinton before. She's not the only Democrat in the group. Um, uh, Senator Bill Nelson, conservative Democrat, but Democrat from Florida, uh, has been very active for years. He's very well represented in the archives. Uh, Senator Mark Pryor, cons- very conservative Democrat, I should say, from uh, Arkansas. He's one of the guys who's been one of the real 
uh, enemies of labor. Um, uh, but is also a Democrat, and he's uh, uh, you know so he's more moderate. Um, has also been a member. I interviewed him. He talked about his his affiliation with it and so on. Um, and and almost in some ways with those guys, you want to say, look, the real issue here is um, where is your source of authority? Is your source of authority uh, the people, the will of the people? Um, or is it this idea of God as revealed in this elite secretive fellowship? Um, so in some ways, your political views don't matter that much if you are taking this very anti-democratic line. And by the way, when I refer to it as anti-democratic, that's not me characterizing them. Uh, the leaders of the group actually don't believe democracy is a good thing. They think democracy, um, democracy is godless. It's the will of the people rather than will of God. It's far too uh, democratic. It's, sorry? It's far too democratic. It's far too democratic. That's the problem with democracy. Um, you know, that means that people who don't believe in God have just as much of a say as people who do. Um, and uh, they don't like that. Um, and But for them, it also means that people who are not chosen by God. And this is one of the really more unusual things. Um, they believe uh, um, that the Jews... This gets into some pretty wacky stuff. That the Jews broke their covenant with God, so that the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. And then, in fact, God has a new cho- chosen. And guess who it is? It's the family. They believe that uh, uh, those who are members of the family um, uh, are, are are actually chosen for their positions of power and leadership by God. This is one of the interesting things because I became a member of the family to, to write about this. So that means I'm chosen by God too. And you can't get unchosen, so they still think of me as a brother. I'm a bad brother, but I'm still a brother in the family, and as far as they're concerned, will be until I die. I've been speaking with Jeff Charlotte. His new book is The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. This has been fascinating. Well, thanks so much, Rick. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.